Hello, everyone, and welcome back to KPMG in Canada's State of Crypto Assets podcast series. After a brief break, we are back with a very special episode focusing both on the year that was for crypto assets in 2021 and what could be in store for 2022. For today's episode, I am very excited to welcome back Kareem Sadek, Kunal Basin, Ken Vegas, and Mitch Nicholson, all of whom have become mainstains in this series. So first and foremost, welcome, gents. It is a pleasure to be back with each of you. Maybe to get us going, Kareem, crypto seems to be everywhere these days. Can you talk a bit about how adoption picked up in 2021? Thanks, Adam. And and I'll, I'll be honest with you. I mean, we've done a lot of these uh, pod bites uh, together, and I'm very excited whenever we're looking back or uh, we're just talking about what we're going to see in the future. It, it just becomes more of a casual discussion. So I'm just looking forward to this uh, a lot. And, and maybe I'll jump right into it. And I'll just say that we've all seen such huge uptick in adoption. I mean, there's several major players entering the space. Uh, however, what we saw in 2021 might just be the tip of the iceberg when it comes to adoption. And when I say it's it's sort of like the tip of the iceberg or there's an uptick in adoption, it's broad, right? There's many types of adoption that we've seen. And, and maybe I'm just going to engage. I want to I want to start off with the team. And we've seen together, guys here, uh, we've worked together through many, many different discussions, uh, engagements, projects. So maybe I'll start off, Kunal, maybe you can get us going. And let's start off with institutional adoption. I'm just curious about your thoughts in terms of what happened in that space over 2021. All right. Thanks, Kareem. And and hi, Adam. Very nice to be back. Uh, Yeah. When we talk about institutional adoption, right? Like I I think 2021 was, was a landmark year for the adoption by institutions. And, you know, we saw a lot of key milestones being achieved this year and, you know, the different ways that institutions are getting involved with crypto asset ecosystem is is just uh, amazing to see. Uh, I mean, one of the ways that we have seen how institutions are are engaging themselves in crypto assets is uh, they are getting direct exposure to these crypto assets. When you think about direct exposure, think about any organization that is uh, investing, you know, their treasury, corporate treasuries into crypto assets directly. We've seen hedge funds, family offices, insurance companies, and and even a lot of you know uh, these companies that are adding uh, even CryptoPunk NFTs to their to their art collection. So this is how they're getting a lot of the direct direct exposure uh, in crypto assets. Um, and we've also seen indirect exposure from these institutions. We've seen you know one of the large Canadian pension fund. Uh, with its private equity investment in a top crypto exchange uh, in the US. And we've also seen retail trading applications, adding adding crypto asset services and, and you know providing those services to their retail clients, uh, allowing their clients to buy and sell crypto assets directly from their platform. Uh, we've seen banks exploring crypto custody and, and how they can engage in the crypto asset ecosystem as well. And we've also seen NFTs being sold at these large international art galleries. And I think a lot of this is to do with how, just how the market infrastructure is maturing for crypto assets. Uh, In in Canada, we recently saw, you know, one of the large uh, asset managers 
start to provide uh, crypto custody services for institutions uh, and they are regulated. So that was that was a huge milestone for the industry as well. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Kunal. Uh, you know, even outside the increase in institutional adoption, I mean, we we as a team, I mean, and broader just consumers, we've seen some measurable increases in, in retail adoption. I mean, I've, we, you've talked a little bit about the institutional side of NFTs and all of that, but even as a consumer or, or just a retail investor, I don't know, Mitch, can like, what are you seeing? What do you think uh, about what's been happening in that space? For sure. Thanks, Kareem. Uh, there's been a significant amount of retail investors flooding into the crypto space. Over the last year, we've seen significant revenue from trading coins like Doge and Shiba Inu. Um, as they're becoming more available on different uh, exchanges. And we've seen an influx of NFTs. NFTs have been some of the hottest uh, tradable assets out there within the crypto space right now. Throughout September, there's been new projects with music artists, video games, and art. All have been making headlines within the media for some serious price tags. Right, Ken, and I've certainly been seeing it everywhere that is terrific you know i think our listeners will agree that it is impressive to not only hear the different types of institutions who are adopting crypto but also the different ways in which they are adopting crypto so as we head into 2022 do you anticipate adoption will increase and if so why do you feel this way mitch why don't you get us started sure thanks adam yeah let's start on the institutional side uh, Canal's given some background. We had corporate treasuries, insurers, hedge funds get in the space. I think the next wave of institutional buying is going to come from the larger investors, the pension funds and the sovereign wealth funds. On the sell side, they're just starting to get involved in the space. And I think that that trend is going to continue much more quickly in 2022. Traditional financial institutions, brokerages, custodians, we're going to see the growing demand from the buy side from the investors encouraging action from the sell side to provide their products and services. Also, the sell side, I think, is going to face growing pressure from competitors as they all begin to race to provide these services. And as what we've seen so far with the existing uh, traditional financial services in the space, it's the earlier movers who tend to capture significant market share and likely there'll be significant mergers and acquisitions activity by traditional companies for crypto startups. I also think the metaverse in 2022 is going to be massive. The metaverse is really a combination of different technologies, augmented reality, virtual reality, NFTs, and crypto. Um, there's been massive growth in developing products for consumers online. And submersive games like Axie Infinity, where, there's, where it's a play-to-earn model, um, is going to bring in tons of users in 2022. Social media and technology companies are getting into the metaverse space and NFTs in the same way traditional finance companies are being disrupted by and adopting DeFi. So in 2022, we'll see many technology companies offer products and services directly related to the metaverse. Yeah, but I, I totally agree, Ken. I think there's there's so much happening in the in the metaverse uh, space. It's it's just absolutely amazing to see. I mean, people are buying real estate in the metaverse. They're buying you know apparel and accessories in the metaverse. It, it, it's really really exciting to see. Yeah, I'll I'll tell you guys when I first uh, when I <laughs> first reading about this. I. I, like even talking to uh, to my uh, my partner and and she was saying, 
I, like I, I don't think anybody's going to be using that. And and let's if history has sold us anything, just in terms of what we've seen with crypto and adoption, I think it's it's a very interesting space, and I think that we're going to continue to see a lot of it in 2022 for sure. Um, so that so that's all great. I mean, however, I I think. We'd be remiss if we're thinking and talking about the increased adoption. It's uh, it's sort of equally important to discuss some of the regulatory changes that, quite frankly, we saw come into effect in 2021. Um, and they both accommodated and, and just sort of fueled the wider adoption in general. Um, I think it's fair to say that many of these changes have gone a long way to further legitimize crypto. I, I don't know if you all agree with me, but I think that's that's sort of uh the viewpoint or what we've seen overall so i mean one of the most recent ones is a good example is one coming out of el salvador where not too long ago they became the first country to approve bitcoin as a legal tender um so with them uh just changing or legalizing that tender status i, I think we've seen what that has done is just an increased access to bitcoin for many people and and businesses around the country obviously that's that's that was the case uh, but it's increased growth in the Lightning Network for, for scaling as, as Bitcoin, everybody knows or heard, like Bitcoin as a layer one transaction fees tend to be very expensive and slow to settle. So I think more likely we're going to see benefits in developing countries just relying on dollars to adopt stable coins, um, especially on the sort of performance blockchains like Solana and, and ETH to layer two. So we're going to see a lot of these uh, changes coming through. Thank you for that, Kareem. I know this is one of the more noteworthy examples of regulatory change, and I'm curious to hear about some of the newly introduced regulations that stick out to each of you. So, Kunal, why don't you start us off? Yep, thanks, Adam. And, and you know, in the regulatory space, you know, my my personal opinion is, you know, the more regulated the space is, uh, the more clarity we have in what we are able to do and, and what we are not able to do. Uh, and we've seen regulators provide more and more clarity in, in especially in 2021 we you know from a security standpoint we saw etf approvals obviously you know canada was one of the first uh, north american countries to to actually approve uh, a spot etf for for bitcoin and ether uh, we've seen in the us recently a us like a futures based etf being approved um, as well and we're continuing to see ET, other ETPs being created in Europe and Germany as well. Um, you know, we've seen the growing attention and the scrutiny from securities regulators around the globe, although, we've, you know, there is limited action currently in the space. And based on our experience working with, you know, some of these providers in the space, they're doing everything they can, uh, keeping in mind the investor protection aspect of it. So I think everyone wants to play by the rules and it's just the, the more clarity we get in these rules, the better it is for the space. We've seen more guidance come in from the Financial Action Task Force, the FATF, around their travel rule for AML. Uh, we've seen these guidance being applied uh, across you know, the various regulatory environments across the globe, uh, be it FinTrack, FinCEN in the US. Uh, and these are primarily requirements uh, to DeFi, especially for, for the autonomous code executed via smart contracts. Uh, we've also seen quite a bit of regulatory clarity and these updates in the stablecoin market. Uh, the the stablecoin market has 
grown tremendously over the past year. I believe it's now over over 120 or over 130 billion dollars in reserves, um, and we're seeing a lot more stablecoins gain adoption uh, because we know in the past it was primarily uh, Tether, which uh, you know, which recently also settled its case with with the CFTC, um, and we're seeing enterprise stablecoins come up from traditional banks and technology companies as well. And all of these stable coins have increased their transparency of reserves. They're providing you know, detailed information on their monthly attestation reports, uh, known, also known as the proof of reserve reports. Uh, we've seen these companies display what, what their composition of holdings are, right? Some of them even break down to the credit ratings of the assets held by them. Uh, with you know, based on what we've seen so far, uh, Pax, which is from Paxos, is the most transparent and conservative in the res in its reserve policy. Uh, so, despite all of this progress, uh, we know that the Ontario Securities Commission has uh, disallowed the use of Tether on crypto exchanges in Canada. So, you know, a lot of updates and clarity coming in, and and we're continuing to see what we can and cannot do and, and where where that lining is. I think that's an understatement. I mean, there really have been just an onslaught of regulatory changes implemented in 2021. Kareem, I'm going to start with you for this one. Do you anticipate the number of regulations implemented to be similar in 2022? Like, what does this number of regulatory changes say about the crypto industry? Is there any underlying message? I mean, that's a, that's a good question. I. I think is it going to be the same or more? I can give you a few examples of of where we think it's going to go. So when you think about the DeFi space, probably got harsher securities regulation on DeFi, and and I think that's where you're going to see that industry split. So on one side, where you're going to have the regulatory compliant app, and on the other side, you have others that are led by the anonymous founders that are just globally distributed and governed governed by DAOs. Uh, so that's going to obviously be a little bit different when it comes to the regulation on the DeFi space. I think it's it's fair to say that users and countries in general that are going to have more of these stringent regulations are just going to suffer more. And I think that's that's just the reality of it as stricter, uh, harsher security regulations on DeFi's uh, uh, come about, I guess. The other thing maybe you could talk about, I think you're going to see more about around stablecoin issuers. So I think they're going to be forced to meet higher regulatory requirements. And I think it's including even obtaining a, a banking charter. I think that's just where we believe that's where things are going to evolve. Um, it's just going to require just more transparency requirements, even about reserve holdings, perhaps a set of, of, I don't know, permissible reserve assets. And then maybe the last thing is around tax enforcement. So there's, there's two sides to it when it comes to tax. And when we talk about tax, I think we're going to see widespread investigations on, on underreported cryptocurrency holdings. And that's, that's honestly just driven by just the mass adoption and, and rising valuation. So I think that's bound to happen. You're going to see more and more. We've seen that in 2021. We're going to see more of that in 2022. The flip side of it, I think that when it's talking about the tax informants, they're going to be more regulatory clarity. And I think Kunal talked a lot about that. Uh, but the, with that regulatory clarity, it's just going to give more clarity on the applicability of taxes for crypto transactions, because there are many different variations of crypto transactions. So 
especially for complex transactions like providing liquidity to DEXs or even experiencing a rug, which as a consumer, maybe at some point or, uh, or investor, you've actually experienced that. So I think you're going to see a lot more uh, clarity when it comes to that from a tax perspective. So what I'm hearing is that, at least generally speaking, these regulatory changes or enhancements, if you will, they're a positive sign for the industry. Now, we have all danced around one thing throughout this entire episode, and that one thing is, of course, technology innovation and DeFi. So, Mitch, I know this is going to be a bit of a tall ask, but can you kick us off with some of the major innovations that we saw in 2021 in the DeFi space? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Uh... DeFi, decentralized finance, it's really about the applications built on top of crypto networks like Ethereum that enable uh, more complex transactions. So, for example, a money market, a decentralized money market like Aave or Compound, it gives the ability to borrow and lend tokens peer-to-peer, where lenders contribute capital to a pool that borrowers can then borrow from. And the application is like the intermediary, the way a bank would be normally for uh, or, or lenders with, like, let's say, customer deposits, and then borrowers like people trying to obtain a mortgage. The pool's utilization, the capital in there, determines the interest rate that's paid to the lenders, right? And that the borrowers, if they want to take money out, they actually have to over collateralize their loan. So, for example, if they borrowed $100 worth of stable coins, they would have to post maybe 150 or $200 worth of Ethereum. I know Kareem talked about tax just before. This is a, a strategy people are using to be able to have dollars or stable coins, but still hold on to their crypto assets. Another type is decentralized exchanges, DEXs, which Kunal mentioned. Those allow users to swap their assets peer to peer rather than using a company or a centralized exchange. One key benefit here is that users get to retain custody of their coins and that avoids the risk of the exchange or trading venue being hacked. The last type that's really interesting is like decentralized asset managers where they create similar bundles of tokens that resemble almost an ETF where these baskets of tokens enable broad market exposure. They can even use the decentralized exchanges to rebalance the weights of the tokens and We've spoke about governance before. The governance token holders can vote on new types of ETFs or changing the structure, maybe adding one token in there or removing another. Now, that's at the application layer for DeFi. More generally, at the protocol layer, I've spoken a lot about Ethereum, but there's been the emergence of alternative layer ones. So those are other blockchains, such as Avalanche, Solana, Luna, or Phantom, where they are other blockchains that have applications built on them. Some may be the same application, such as Aave being on both Ethereum and Avalanche, or a new native application. What's interesting is each of these layer one protocols have an ecosystem fund, or basically a set, a set of tokens that are used to incentivize adoption, where users of the platform will be compensated in terms of rebates or extra rewards for trying out the applications on the platform. And the goal there is to help drive overall adoption. And I'll throw it over to Ken to talk a bit about some of the data we're seeing in terms of the usage and the total value locked. 
Uh, TVL, total value locked, has been increasing since October 2020. The amount of money that's being um, locked within smart contracts is, is, is incredible. Um, and this really just shows that people are interacting with this, within these ecosystems. Mitch mentioned uh, there's been a rise in alternate layer ones outside of Ethereum, Avalanche, Solana, Luna, Phantom. Um, this has been enabled by the Ethereum virtual machine being all of these applications are usually EVM compatible. And a lot of the work that's going into Ethereum is not going to waste it on these other on these other layer ones. These applications can be brought across and um, be made more efficient. We have lower fees, we have uh, higher throughputs, and it's really incentivizing users to um, stay on the platform and or stay on the network and interact more frequently. Um, we've also seen some link liquidity incentivization programs where layer ones give applications tokens from their ecosystem fund to incentivize end users for interacting with their applications. Phantom and Avalanche have programs of, in excess of 250 million and tens of billions of dollars of assets have been bridged from Ethereum, Ethereum to these alt layer ones. Well, can I, can I, I mean, that's, that's so interesting as you, as you're going through the numbers and I. Obviously, I'm I'm aware of them, but when you're saying them out loud, Ken, just the the numbers are are incredible. I, maybe I'll just, if if I may, ask just a a question. We've seen a lot of these the the total value locked uh, increasing and uh, the the dollars that are flowing into this. And and one thing where you're saying liquidity incentivization programs, I'm just curious. I, again, that's that's no not uh, not something that that I would know about, but Curious to know your your thoughts in terms of whether these platforms are going to continue to incentivize people uh, with whatever their tokens or otherwise going into 2022 and maybe even broader to 2023. Yeah, I, I can start off there. It, it's a very competitive landscape where there's users growing by the day, but each protocol is, is really vying for their attention and vying for the applications to build on their platform. Yeah. It's almost like having an app store that's empty and trying to encourage applications to come there. Yeah, that's it, true. It really empowers the users and rewards the users for being open-minded and trying out different applications and platforms and, and exploring. And, and I think that's one appeal of crypto and DeFi is that there's a lot of learning involved continually. No, great. Thanks. A lot of incentives, but there's, there's a lot of, I, I can see that throughout a lot of uptick in adoption in general. I can see that as well. I am curious though, and, you know, understanding from what your responses will be, this is probably speculative, but should we expect to see as much innovation in 2022? Ken, what do you think? Definitely. I think we're going to see even more innovation in 2022. I think 2022 is going to be a massive year for DeFi and the whole crypto ecosystem as a whole. We're going to see institutional adoption of DeFi um, increase exponentially and applications where institutional lenders can select a whitelisted group of borrowing counterparties. Um, these will become more attractive to them. Um, with these institutions coming in, we're going to see an influx of, uh, of capital. And so that's going to compress the yields overall. But that's going to be still way more competitive than traditional finance. We're going to see quicker solutions for bridging assets across chains, including be able to hold collateral on one chain and then use borrow assets on another. 
So more, interoper more interoperability will also be applied to Bitcoin directly rather than relying on a trusted intermediary with uh, WBTC or wrapped BTC. I love that. And the excitement is downright powerful <laughs> when you say it. So we've got a lot to look forward to. Kareem, Kunal, Ken, and Mitch, this has been a downright impressive time for me to just hear about not only some of the big stories from the world of crypto in 2021, but also some of your predictions for 2022. Unfortunately, that does bring us to a close for today's episode. But before we go, I want to extend my most sincere thank you to each of you for joining us today. I know our listeners have enjoyed your insights as much as I have. And to our fantastic community of listeners across all platforms, thank you once more for tuning in. Be sure to check us out next time on KPMG in Canada's series on the state of crypto assets. Bye, everybody.